Well, today we get to witness a cosmic showdown, a true battle between good and evil in the wilderness of Judea. And in my mind, when I read Matthew chapter 4, I have the mental image of a boxing ring. In one corner, we have our enemy, the prince of darkness, the ruler of this earthly, broken kingdom, Satan himself. And in the other corner, we have the anointed and approved Son of God, the incarnate Word, Jesus Christ, who has come to usher in the kingdom of heaven. And this showdown, this battle that will unfold in Matthew chapter 4, is meant to be a picture of the greater war that Jesus has come to fight on our behalf. A war between two opposing kingdoms, one opposed to the will of God and one completely devoted to the will of God. One that will pass away and one that is eternal. On the face of it, it's an intriguing matchup until you realize that at the end of this passage, the opponents aren't really that evenly matched. Until you realize that our greatest enemy has seen in Jesus his ultimate defeat and an authority that he must obey because that authority comes directly from the Father. Now that doesn't stop the enemy from trying though. Because in this passage, Satan tries to lead Jesus away from faithfulness and in to failure as he has done servants of God many times before. Satan tries to recreate the strategy that has been successful among God's people to lead them outside of God's will. Think about Adam in the garden. Satan tempted him with that which was pleasing to the eye and manipulated him to reject the commands of God. Israel, God's chosen people, when they were in the wilderness and really the whole of the Old Testament they didn't trust in the provision of God. They complained and threatened God's messenger, Moses, in the process. But where others failed, the first man, Adam, God's covenant people, Israel, Jesus will succeed. And he will show us that he is the true and better Adam, that he is the true and better Israel, the one who has come to defeat the kingdom of darkness and usher in the kingdom of heaven. In our passage today, we will see Jesus win this first battle over our enemy and be prepared for the larger battle that God has sent him also to win. In the wilderness, Jesus will prove himself to be the long-awaited faithful son. Let's read it together. Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Let's hear the word of God. That Jesus was led up by the Spirit. This is right after his baptism. Into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. 
Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it's written, He will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to them, or to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Now I want us to notice from the beginning that everything that happens in this passage is at the direction of God. The Spirit, according to verse 1, leads Jesus further into the wilderness. And that lets us know that God has a purpose for Christ here to prepare Jesus as the God-man for the work that he is now ready to fully engage in his earthly ministry. He is led there to fast. He is led there to learn to completely rely upon the Lord. But Matthew lets us know that the enemy also has a purpose in this wilderness moment. Whereas the Lord tests, the enemy has come to tempt And God wants to prove faithfulness in Jesus. But the enemy wants to prove unfaithfulness. And God sovereignly allows, he sovereignly allows the enemy to come and tempt in the middle of this test as part of the test to show the unyielding faithfulness of the Son. Let us never forget in the course of this passage that God is in control from beginning to end. But the enemy does come. And he tempts Jesus in three ways, each of which tests the son's commitment to the will of the father. The first temptation is kind of a physical temptation. The second temptation is more of a mental temptation. And the third temptation is a spiritual temptation. Now, I'm not trying to oversimplify here. I'm sure that the physical temptation had elements of mental and spiritual temptation alongside them as well, as well as with the other two. I'm just seeking to highlight the aspect of Christ's humanity that was most engaged in each temptation to help us understand the complexity of the enemy's attack against us so that we can be prepared. But let's look at each temptation individually just for a moment. Temptation number one, the physical Temptation. Satan tries to get Jesus to perform a self-serving miracle. Matthew tells us in verse 2 that Jesus has been fasting in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights, and unsurprisingly, he's hungry. In this moment of physical weakness, the tempter comes to Jesus and suggests to him that he turns these stones... Right here, right beside you, Jesus, why don't you turn them into bread, according to verse 3? If God can turn the stones that John the Baptist referenced 
into sons of Abraham in chapter 3, verse 9, then surely you as the Son of God can turn these stones into bread. But to do that would cut at the heart of the whole reason that Jesus was led into the wilderness. Jesus was led into the wilderness by the Spirit to learn to trust God, to trust in his provision, to trust in his will. God led him here, and God will provide for him here. And Jesus, as the God-man, has to fully believe that if he is going to fulfill the work that God has called him to do. He has to believe in the ongoing faithful provision of God. And he does. And he says to the enemy, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. He's quoting here Deuteronomy 8, chapter 3, showing that he will not make the same mistake that the people of God did, Israel, in their wilderness wanderings when they doubted the provision of God. If the Father has led him here, he knows that his Father will provide for him here, just as he did the people of God then, just as he did Elijah in his wilderness moment. God will sustain him. He will sustain his life because God has great plans for his life. God's not finished with Jesus yet. Temptation number two. The mental temptation. Satan tries to get Jesus to offer an unnecessary spectacle to prove the Lord, to test the Lord, as if this is his testing. Now, the enemy does something quite interesting here at this point in the story. Verse 5, he takes Jesus, and we don't really know how, either supernaturally in a physical way or by vision, to the pinnacle of the temple. And they're overlooking the Kidron Valley, and there's a a long way down to the earth from where they're standing. It's very high. And he, he tells Jesus to jump. Jesus, why don't you jump? And he uses scripture to support his temptation. Jump because God will command his angels concerning you. And you won't even stump your toe. So the psalmist wrote in Psalm 91 verses 11 to 12. And, and you know that he has to be thinking. Think about or suggesting, think about how great that will make you feel. Think about how confident that will make you in God's sustaining activity. If you do this crazy thing and God shows up, if, if he'll show up in this, where will he not show up? So just, just jump and prove the faithfulness of God. Well, Satan's quotation of scripture is meant to be manipulative, even though it's accurate. It misses the point of the whole psalm, which is to take refuge in God. That's what we see in Psalm 91, verse 2. If I say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God, in whom I trust. So Jesus answers with a quotation of his own from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16. You dare not test the Lord your God. Essentially, here's what Jesus is saying in response to the temptation of Satan. The promises of God are not meant to be constraints on God, forcing him to act through my own recklessness outside of his will. These are promises of God's protection and care within his will. This jump would be foolish 
It's an unnecessary spectacle. And by the way, I don't need it to trust in the care of God. Because I know he will care for me. I'm his chosen servant. Temptation number three, the spiritual one. Satan tries to get Jesus to worship him for an easier path. The final temptation may be the most dangerous, the most consequential. Satan again takes Jesus either by supernatural means or by means of vision to a mountain and places him before the kingdoms of the world. And here we see Satan's true intention. He says to the Son of God, I will give you all of this if you won't worship God, but rather if you will worship me. That's a pretty audacious claim, isn't it? And yet there's true temptation here. Why? Because it's a temptation to a path to power without suffering. And yet it's a far more destructive path. Listen, Jesus knows the will of the Father. He knows the will of the Father is for him to suffer. He knows God's will is the cross. Christ knows what awaits him. And yet even as Satan offers him the world, this world, he knows it is passing away and that he has come to establish an eternal kingdom that is rooted in the worship of the one true God, a kingdom that will never pass away. And so he commands Satan to leave, which he does. And he quotes Deuteronomy 5, 6 through 8, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Listen, this whole mess started when God's people forgot the true object of their worship. When Adam forgot the true object of his worship and Jesus will not make the same mistake. And having emerged victorious, Jesus is ministered to by the angels. The Father cares for his Son. And we see the kingdom of heaven now making inroads into the kingdom of this world. Our victor, our champion has been revealed. He is the long-awaited Son. Now what I want to do in our remaining time together is to consider why this story of the temptation or the testing of Jesus is so important for us as God's people today. This story is fascinating. It's a, a peek behind the curtain of this battle that's waging. And yet it's not just a fascinating story between Jesus and Satan. It's a a story that has profound implications for our lives even today. Think about all that this story teaches us as the people of God. Certainly, it, it solidifies further the identity of Christ. We get a, a great deal. We learn a great deal about who Jesus is in this story, specifically about the nature of his substitutionary work. Something we began talking about last week, that Jesus will succeed where God's people have failed, that Jesus will succeed where we have failed. Again, Jesus is shown here to be the better Adam. There's an unmistakable parallel between this passage and Genesis chapter 3. And that moment and that temptation story, Adam 
was tempted by the tempter with desirable food, which is a physical temptation. He was tempted with knowledge like that of God, a mental temptation. And he was tempted in a choice of worship. Will you follow the word of God or follow the word of Satan? And Adam was unable to withstand the attack of the enemy in the best of circumstances. And as a result, sin entered the world. But Jesus, in the worst of circumstances, remains faithful. And the consequences are incredible. As Paul writes about in Romans chapter 5, verse 18, As one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Jesus is shown here to be the better Adam. More than that, he's also shown to be the better Israel. Israel had a wilderness experience. Having just been miraculously delivered from Egyptian bondage by their God, but they did not trust in his ongoing provision for them. In fact, when they get into the wilderness, they begin to complain to Moses and they say some incredible things in Exodus 16. It would have been better for us to have stayed in Egypt. And God should have just killed us there rather than bring us out here and let us die. At least the Egyptians had food. They had forgotten their cries and they had forgotten God's miraculous deliverance. Did they not think that if God could turn the Nile into blood, that he could bring water from a rock? That if he could throw locusts and frogs, if he could turn everything into darkness, that he could provide bread for them as they wandered around the wilderness. They lost sight of who God was. Jesus, though, stands firm, in his, stands firm in his wilderness experience on God's promises and trusts in his provision. He is the better Israel. Listen, he will fulfill all righteousness for our sake so that we too can withstand the attack of the enemy and walk in the will of God. In this story, friends, we get to behold more of the glory of Christ. He is worthy to be worshipped. The better Adam, the better Israel. And from his example, we also learn some practical things about the purpose of Wilderness moments, for instance. Haven't we all had a wilderness moment? And who likes the desert? Who likes walking in the wilderness? Who likes moments of hardship or uncertainty? Who likes moments of waiting or wondering to know what God has next for us? But did you know that many, many of the major figures of the Bible had wilderness moments? that God uses to prepare them for their ministry. Moses had a wilderness moment. Exodus chapter 3 and Exodus chapter 4, when God met him in a burning bush and prepared him to be his representative before Pharaoh. Elijah had a wilderness moment in 1 Kings 19, right after the incredible moment on Mount Carmel where fire fell down, Jezebel comes after him and he flees. And in the wilderness, God meets him and reminds him of his ongoing 
provision. There are more, but then of course Jesus has one here. And it's a reminder to us as the people of God today that sometimes God leads us into the wilderness to test our faithfulness and prepare us for the work that he will give to us. We need to believe and know and trust that seasons of waiting and seasons of hardship are not wasted in the kingdom of God. They are not wasted in the economy of God. Because in those moments of wondering, in those moments of waiting, of difficulty, God is working for our good. He is working for his glory and our good, often preparing for us for things that we have not yet even seen. That's certainly true of individual stories. It's only true of my story. I think of big moments in my life, big spiritual moments in my life. There was always a season of preparation right before them that were difficult. And I'm sure that's true of many of you in this room as well. It's true of individual stories, and it's also true of our corporate story. It's also true of, of what happens and takes, places, um, place, takes place among the people of God. Think about where we have been as a church, Bayleaf Baptist Church, in the past two years. We've been dealing with COVID. It's been a difficult season, right? Trying to navigate what to do in the midst of a pandemic. There's been a pastoral transition that's taken place moving from Pastor Marty now to, to my time serving as a senior pastor here, but that wasn't uh, an un... without difficulty, right? There were challenges along the way. I'm trying to think of the best way to say that. There was uncertainty. What was going to happen? What was next? But think about how in the midst of all of these things, COVID, uh, weather, think about and a pastoral transition, how God can use those things to prepare us. I think about the COVID thing in particular. Think about how God has used the season of COVID to refine our faith. It's helped us to rethink ministry, right? To consider what's actually important versus what we just hold to because we've always done it that way. There are some things that we can let go of now because of what God has shown us in the season of COVID. I think about how God has grown even my love for the gathering of God's people to the point where even when I threatened to hamper our gathering, our pastoral staff began asking the question, how can we meet? Because we want to meet. Because we've seen it taken away and we don't want, ever want to forsake or take for granted the gathering of God's people. That's something that God has stirred within us through this past two years, through this moment of wilderness. And can you imagine what God is preparing for us through these moments of transition and through these moments of difficulty? We've got to quit wishing for God to move us out of the wilderness until we're ready to walk in what he has prepared for us and what he is preparing us for in the wilderness moment. Let's have a different perspective, friends, when we're walking in those moments of wilderness. Let's begin asking the question, God, what are you doing in me right now to prepare me for what you have next? And let's wait and trust in the Lord in his timing to show exactly what he wants from us in his perfect time. And not only do we learn about wilderness moments, we also learn about the nature of temptation from the example of Jesus. 
Another practical outflow of this story, and this application is typically the the thing we think about most when we think about Matthew chapter 4. As we're challenged to follow the example of Christ in the face of temptation. And there are some helpful things here. Think about this. It reminds us that the tempter often attacks in two seasons. Two seasons of life. He usually attacks either after a mountaintop experience or in a moment of weakness. Has this been true of your life? It's only been true of my life. That the enemy will attack when we are on a super spiritual high or when we find ourselves in a, a physically weak state. How many times growing up or in the course of your walk with Christ did you make a commitment to the Lord at a retreat or a conference or a disciple now or after some really incredible Sunday morning experience that you, you, you dedicate your life to the Lord, you commit, you resolve some things because the Lord met you there, he spoke over you, there was something that just was soul-stirring and refining, and you walk out of that room emboldened, on fire for the Lord. And then the next day, the enemy comes hard. You ever experienced that? To test your resolve? Oh, yeah, you made that commitment when you were at the retreat, but what about now back at your job? What about now at your school? What about in your bedroom? Are you going to resolve to keep that commitment? Are you going to actually tell people about Jesus? Are you actually going to confess the, the satisfying reality of Jesus? Or are you just going to fall back into what you used to do? Think about this here. I mean, Jesus has just had God speak over him. My beloved son. He's just been walking with God in intimacy for 40 days. Here comes the enemy to test the resolve and the faithfulness of the son. It's just like Elijah, right? Elijah has the Mount Carmel experience. He calls down fire from heaven. It's a true mountaintop experience. And the moment difficulty comes, he runs. Because he's tempted with fear instead of trust in God's provision. We've got to be aware of that. That when we have these incredible God moments, these mountaintop experiences, the enemy's going to come because he doesn't want us to remain in faithfulness. He wants to lead us into unfaithfulness. And it'll also come in moments of physical weakness. My pastor, uh, Stephen Trammell, who's my pastor in college and then in Houston as well for a little while, always told us that we need to be careful in moments when we need to halt. When we're hungry, when we're angry, when we're lonely, when we're tired. Because when you're hungry, when you're angry, when you're lonely, when you're tired, you're vulnerable. And the enemy will attack to come after us in faithfulness. But friends, what will we do? Will we be prepared when the enemy comes? Because we know that he will come. And oftentimes, he will even manipulate God's word to strengthen the temptation, reminding us always that we need to be careful about our mugs and our T-shirts with verses taken out of context. <laughs> but that's exactly what the enemy did here. We need to know the word of God. We need to make sure that we as the people of God are cultivating our minds after the mind of Christ through the word and seeking to walk in the empowerment of the spirit because he alone can strengthen us. 
It's good to be with the people of God. It's good to be in the word of God because that's how we prepare and how we are strengthened rightly to withstand the attack of the enemy. And remember, we are able to resist the attack of the enemy because Christ did. It's because of Christ's work here that we know Christ working within us gives us the power to withstand the attack of the enemy. He has been faithful, and you can be faithful because he is in you, and he is faithful. Don't believe that whatever the enemy throws at you, you can't overcome, that you can't withstand. Christ in you is greater. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. You can withstand the attack of the enemy, and Christ has enabled you to do that. You can because he did. And finally, the final thing that I want us to, to take away from this story tonight, again, turning back to the work of Christ, is that this story helps us rest in the victory of Christ. I love the ending of this story. In verse 10, when Jesus flexes his spiritual muscle and he tells Satan to be gone. And do you know what Satan does? He gets. He goes. He has to leave because the authority of Christ demands it. And do you know that one day Jesus will tell Satan to be gone for good? For all of eternity. And that victory, friends, has already begun. And that victory will be realized day by day as the gospel goes forth, as the church grows, and we await the day of Christ's return. So I want that to minister to you today. To realize who has the ultimate authority here, who's actually always in control. Let that minister to you in the in the moments of hardship, in the moments of failure, in the moments of temptation. That our Christ is victorious. Now Satan may try to distract us and lead us astray, but his work is in vain because the work of Christ is finished. Jesus is the faithful son. Let's step into that provision and let's walk after his example, for the glory of God. Amen? Amen. Wherever you are, would you bow your heads? Spend some time in this room, in your homes, asking God to help you know how to respond. Let me ask you this. Have you stepped into the provision of Jesus? Have you allowed him to take your place by coming under his substitutionary work? Responding in repentance and belief to the work of Christ, the gospel. If you've never given your life to Jesus, if you've never asked God to cover your life in the life of Jesus, would you do that tonight in your home? And the way you do that is just confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. If you feel the Spirit leading you in that, we would love to talk with you more about that. Come to the front after the service tonight. Call us this week at the church. We would love to walk with you 
as you seek to walk after Christ? And if you are in Jesus, are you living in his provision? Do you believe that because Jesus is the faithful son, the better Adam, the better Israel, that you can walk in victory over temptation, that you can walk in confidence even in the midst of wilderness moments? Because you know that God is doing something and desiring to use you to build his kingdom and further his gospel just as he did Jesus. Let's walk in the kind of surety and confidence that Jesus did. Knowing the word of God, filled with the spirit, committed to the purpose and the will of the Father. Would you help us walk in that as your people, God? We want to be found faithful in that. And then would you help us rest in the ultimate victory of Jesus? This battle, this war is not in doubt. This victory in Matthew 4 is just the first of many. The battle has always belonged to you, God. And that victory is secure in Christ. And we await the day when our enemy and the full work of sin and death will be overcome and we will step into glory forever. Stir our hearts with right hope and longing for that day, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Would you stand and respond as the Lord leads? Thank you for worshiping with us. For more information about Bayleaf Baptist Church, visit our website, bayleaf.org.